Live from the Lincoln Douglas Building in downtown Quincy, the only local show taking a principled stand on the issues of the day. This is how it happens. It's the natural process of things. The view of the entrenched is predictable, but it's also erroneous. With Sean Seacrease. We have an addiction in this country, not only to government welfare and government handouts, but more fundamentally to other people's money. And Quaid. Again, you're dancing with government. This is the morning meeting. You cannot continue to advocate for status quo when status quo has run the ship aground. On Talk Radio 930, WTAD. It's the day after. Did you survive? I think that's the question after the debate last night. Hillary versus Donald. We'll get into all of it coming up this morning here on the morning meeting. And we'll take a deep dive into Illinois as we're joined by the Illinois watchdog himself, Ben Yount, here on the morning meeting. Sean Sacre's with you this morning. Quaid continues his sabbatical away from the show. He is just about finished with his reindeer urine recycling project that he took the sabbatical in order to establish in fact, he has enough free time from said reindeer urine recycling project that he's actually going to join me for a reaction to last night's debate coming up in just about five minutes here on the morning meeting. Hofstra University was the setting last night. The first note that I made on my little... I'm still a Luddite when it comes to my notes when I'm watching stuff. Uh, I write them down instead of putting them in my phone. I tried that, and, and I like to reorganize and draw arrows and use different uh, um, annotations and things like that. So I've gone back to the old school ink on paper uh, format. The first note that I actually made about the debate last night wasn't about the performance of either of the two participants, nor was it about the performance of the moderator. It was actually about the setting. I thought this was very interesting. By agreeing to have the audience remain silent, which they accomplished for two-thirds of the sitting, it's better than you can get out of most six-year-olds, right, uh, was to remain silent throughout the debate. It sucked the air out of the room. That's what I felt like. It sucked the air out of the room, and it made it a very dry, clinical, academic setting in which there was no energy. And I thought that really played well for Clinton. She didn't have to sort of get in and, and, and brawl with a lot of energy in the room going back and forth. And, and it's the energy in the primary debates and at rallies that we see Donald Trump often feed off of and gain his momentum. He looked like somebody for like the first 15 minutes who was trying to find a wall outlet to plug the charger into. Like he couldn't find anything. He didn't know where that usual source of energy was at the time. And I thought that environment uh, really gave her an opportunity to uh, control the narrative a little bit more. Not in a way that, that she was forcing his responses and so forth, but the lack of energy made it much more clinical, much more academic, much more of an environment that she would excel in at that time. So I thought that was the first thing that jumped off the page uh, to me. From tax plans to trying to stay as far away as possible from the question that Lester Holt brought up about uh, uh, racial healing uh, in the country. You know, we're, we're at a time right now where, where tension is high, whether it's police shooting or, or other crimes that, that have brought this to the forefront from Ferguson all the way to Charlotte. 
neither candidate really seemed like they wanted to touch that. Boy, they brought out the 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 meaningless platitudes when that came up at that point and didn't want to have anything to do with actually getting their hands dirty. And that was jarring after seeing how how fervently they were going after each other and extolling their beliefs during the economic portion of the debate, uh, which led things off. So it was very interesting how the energy, I thought, sort of ebbed and flowed, how Lester Holt picked his opportunities to be involved, and just how many times he put uh, Donald under the microscope while it seemed Hillary really got kind of a free pass on a couple of key issues that I wonder if she'll get in the next couple of debates. So we'll get into all that uh, when Quaid joins me. Coming up in just a moment, though, Josh, I do want to hit this. If you missed last night or if you just couldn't bear to sit through it or if you're a normal person who needed to refill their beverage or get up and use the facility during the hour and a half that they went uninterrupted, I used to think that was great. Now I want to break like every 30 minutes so that I can get up do what I want to do, refill my drink, and then, you know, get back in for the next part. So if you missed any of it while you're away, here's a, uh, a montage that was put together uh, based on last night's debate at Hofstra between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. I have a feeling that by the end of this evening, I'm going to be blamed for everything that's ever happened. Why not? Why not? Yeah, why not? <laughs> jo- you know, just just, just join, uh, join the debate by uh, saying more crazy things. And now you're just starting to think of solutions. Well, actually, I will bring, excuse me, I will bring back jobs. When she releases her 33,000 emails that have been deleted, as soon as she releases them, I will release, I will release my tax returns. And you know what else I prepared for? I prepared to be president, and I think that's a good thing. Frankly, I think the best person in her campaign is mainstream media. My question Just, is, since you, would you like to hear? Why is your, I was why against is your the judgment? war. Wait a minute. Woo. Okay. Mine's getting a little bit old, I must say. Listen, it's a good one, though. I, I would like to, well describes not, the problem. Not a, it's not an accurate one at all. I want to get on to defeating ISIS because I want to get on to creating jobs. Vote as though your future depended on it, because I think it does. That's the one thing that she got absolutely right, without a doubt. Vote as though your future depends on it. Not just in this election, but that's the tack that you need to take every time you're about to participate in an election because those who are elected will set the parameters for what your future is allowed to be. Now, this this presidential election certainly drawing those lines brightly in the sand. The other thing that stuck out to me, and uh, we'll get Quaid's take on this when he joins me in just a moment, how many times Hillary used the word fair? It seems like such a subtle thing to say. We all understand the concept of fairness. We all understand implicitly that you have to be fair in your life. But is there the real liberal expectation that life can be made fair? Once you understand that life isn't fair, a lot of things fall into place and you stop trying to micromanage everything. But no, her. You, I wish I had kept a running tally of how many times she said the word fair or we need fairness or we need to make the economy fair for everyone. All that means is that they're looking for more governmental power to enforce their definition of fairness. And you can't have a definition of fairness unless you control every aspect from setting the minimum wage to the uh, age that you have to be to go off your parents' insurance to the way that government benefits will be distributed to everyone else to economic redistribution, which she calls a tax plan. Unless you micromanage every part of everyone's life, 
you're not going to be able to come up with something that's, quote, fair. I thought it was interesting how many times she used that word. You could tell the other thing I wrote down was focus group tested. That's absolutely what it was. Every time she said fair, I rolled my eyes because the only way that you can ensure that fairness is to have government so deeply ingrained and involved in everyone's life that it's making and moderating those decisions and interactions between all of its citizenry. And it was very big brotherish to me. And I got a little I got a little chill that ran up the back of my spine when she kept using the word fair and talking about government money. That's your money. It's your tax dollars. That's your money that they're taking from you and using to enforce their social justice credo. So we'll see if it's understood on the level that we here on the morning meeting understood what we were hearing last night. All right, who was escorted from the scene of the debate before it began? That's Ann Quaid joins us next here on the morning meeting. Giving conservatives a voice in the tri-states. I mean, this stuff moves people. It's the morning meeting on Talk Radio 930 WTAD. WTAD. Oh, the adventures he's had during this sabbatical. I'm surprised he's been able to take time away, but now that he is on top of the reindeer urine recycling game in this country, he has a little time to uh, enjoy that newfound success and join us here on the morning meeting. Uh, you normally know him as the gentleman who uh, sits alongside me and co-hosts this show, but he has been away for some time. He'll be back tomorrow in full force, but wanted to come back and uh, jump in after the debate last night. Quaid with me this morning on the hotline. Good morning, sir. I don't think everybody's forgotten who I am. I would hope not. And hopefully this yeah. reminder sort of plants that seed that says, yeah, we miss that guy. <laughs> well, well, good. I, uh, look, reindeer uh, uh, urine recycling, there's a future there. Uh, I don't know if there's a future with government grants, but there is a future there. Well, according to what I heard last night, Hillary thinks that might be the uh, alternative clean energy source uh, for the 23rd century coming up. Uh, they didn't get in much to uh, power and the economy and, and, and energy and and uh, the, the idea of being both energy strong and uh, energy independent. They kind of hinted around it on the edges. It was one of the things in my mind that I was expecting, but they didn't really get into. Uh, I mentioned the first thing that stood out to me was the very dry academic environment, which I thought uh, was, a, was a win for Hillary. It didn't have a lot of emotion to it. Trump usually feeds on that. He looked like somebody who was walking around trying to find an outlet to, to, to plug his power cord into for the first 15 minutes and, and couldn't find anything. Um, other than Hillary deciding to go with the head-to-toe red pantsuit, what else kind of jumped out off the screen at you last night? Well, the whole thing was set up for her to succeed and for him to step in it all by himself. That was uh, the narrative going into it was uh, how he can lose it, that, that she couldn't necessarily win the presidency last time of the debate, but he could screw it up for himself. So that was the framework heading into it, and, that, and I believe that was the media's hope. And he quasi-addressed that at one point late in the debate, saying that the media was the best part of her campaign, mm -hmm. uh, I, I, and I'm sure you've addressed this uh, with the listeners already this morning. I don't know that that he hurt himself so terribly that that you know he's done, but I don't think she won so convincingly that it's over either. 
Well, the headline on CNN, I uh, believe I got to it about 90 seconds after they concluded the debate. Huge, huge uh, uh, point size landslide victory for Hillary in debates. And I thought, okay, I'll take your clickbait and get in here. You could tell this was a a preset headline and story that was going to run, no matter uh, if she had had to be, you know, carried off the stage at some point. Thankfully, that didn't happen. But it was it was two paragraphs of of why CNN thought she won, and then buried in the third paragraph was the director of this poll says you should take it with a grain of salt because twenty percent more Democrats were included in this poll than would normally be. So they. <laughs> They actually constructed a group that would give them the headline that they wanted to run. This is not something new, though. So I think you really have to understand for yourself in in your own background of what's important to you and what answers the country needs in your mind. You, You can't, in my mind, Quaid, go and look for a detached, cerebral breakdown of what we just saw last night. Everyone's pushing an agenda. Oh, everybody's pushing an agenda. Even the, and this was, I think, I don't know if you were uh, on social media after the debate. Uh, the fact checkers became a thing, and, and because Hillary was talking about, mm-hmm. go check out the fact checking that will be at my website. Well, when fact checking is at a candidate's website, does anybody really believe it to be unbiased fact checking? Well, that jumped out right away. I think that I felt kind of uh, frustrated enough that I didn't want to subject myself to social media after the debate last night. Two friends of mine, though, who who do lean left, text me, and they described the whole proceeding, and I'm going to use the edited for the morning meeting version of this, as a dog poop throwing contest. So that that was the feeling kind of from people I talked to on, on the left as well. Look, we, be reminded, we've already lived through this after going through the big Republican debates and winnowing the field down to Donald. Uh, having just the two of them on stage last night, we got a glimpse back at how Donald was in those debates uh, the first time. He was kind of just winging it. And early on, I thought he, he kind of has his game together. But about midway through the proceedings, and I was actually taking notes, it became very clear that she was big government talking to America, explaining why we need her, and he was the American public explaining or extolling, you just screwed it up, you've goofed up, why would we want you to go back and attempt to fix something that you messed up in the first place. Yeah, as they got to the end of the debate last night and got into a little bit more foreign policy, uh, that became a very bright line that each candidate was trying to draw. Hillary saying, look, I have the experience. I have built my resume. Essentially, I've spent my life in government trying to ascend to the top government spot. And she was, I've done this, I've done this. And, And Donald making a very clear case that you've done those things, but they're all Bad things that you've accomplished, the Iran deal going bad, other things that he was extolling throughout the evening. And I thought it was a smart move at the end because we knew she was going to extol her experience. Him saying, sure, you've got those reps in, but the results have been nearly universally bad for this country. That, to me, drew a very bright line, Quaid. Yeah, and and you got to understand the, the people who are writing the articles, the, the pundits, the media are looking at this through, I don't want to say an academic lens, but through the, the lens of historically how these things work. And the, the, the people I was watching the debate with, I had to explain to them before the start, you can't use the metrics that we've used in the past 
when in regards to Trump appearing at this. He's not a politician. I know he's been going through this for the last 15 months, 16 months or so, but he's not. he doesn't approach it as a politician. So to try and jam him into that square peg isn't going to work. He's going to fail if that's the framework every time, and that's not the way the voting public will view him. I thought it was interesting, and th- there wasn't any one phrase from either one that that will absolutely prove what I'm about to say to be true. But each one, I thought, had an an overarching sentiment to the way they approached any question from the economy to race relations to international relationships. And for Hillary, it was absolute government control. She wanted to make the economy fair. She wanted a fair share paid in taxes by the rich, essentially forced fiscal redistribution. Uh, She said, I will invest in you. Use Government doesn't have money of its own. It takes your money and and invests it. She's going to use your money in a way that she thinks will make life fair. Uh, She wanted college to be debt-free because it wasn't fair. Uh, There's no longer gun control. There's gun safety because the government needs to decide who is uh, fair enough-minded in order to have uh, guns in this society. And I thought her, her entire approach was that she was going to use the cudgel of government to enforce what they think is a fair vision of life on everyone. And on the other side, for me, for Trump, it was, in a way, aspirational. He, he did a good job of, I thought, utilizing the best thing that he has, and that's the success of his private company, and saying, look, the reason I'm bringing it up and the only reason I'm talking about these things is because we need to change the mindset in government. We need to stop thinking small and start thinking big when it comes to achieving things. And that takes on many different forms, whether it's, you know, he always found him saying we need to renegotiate some deals and get some better deals in place. It, It was that idea of thinking big. And when he brought up the fact that not only are we $30 trillion in debt, that essentially we're a debtor nation, but we're a debtor nation with a dead infrastructure to boot. So it's not like we spent all this money and have these lavish things to show for it. Everything, when it comes to infrastructure and so forth, is so outdated in this country, and we have nothing but a mountain of debt to show for these uh, uh, programs that have been instituted by government, whether they're uh, social safety net programs or, or so on and so forth, nation building in, in other countries. He, his idea to me was to try and think aspirational. I know that's a little bit detached. It's, it's not a, a hard science, so to speak. It is an ideology that might be hard for some people to grasp. But I thought that was the real difference between the two approaches. He wants the country to sort of think aspirationally, and she wants the country to just rely on government to make their life fair. Yeah, uh, and I'll, I'm going to try and quote him. I don't know that I have this verbatim, but at one point in time, and this is kind of buttressing what you were saying, he said it's about time our country has somebody running it who knows something about money. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and she talked in circles almost out of the gate where government is the hub, and they, she talked about investment in that if you understand the words, that's taxes. And taxes then promoting small business. Well, Small business can't withstand the taxes that she's talking about uh, raising. She talks about increased minimum wage. Again, small business can't withstand that. So they, they were incongruent, but if you put government at the hub of it, it kind of forces things uh, to happen that can't happen 
in a uh, free market. And if you understand the terminology and the way the economy and the way business works, you understand that there were a lot of incongruencies with what she was pitching last night. As for the moderator, the moderators always seem to become a part of the story at this point. I thought Lester Holt did a, a good job on balance. I thought there were a couple of obvious gaffes on his part. I'm not going to go so far as to say they were a motivated influence, but I thought his willingness, and this may have to do with how they chose to handle Hillary as the first you know, female presidential candidate on stage for this, but he really, to me, was more aggressive going after Trump and trying to pursue answers, whether it was on the tax returns or whether it was on the uh, the birther issue. He never followed up aggressively with Hillary on any front, whether it was the emails, whether it was when she made that that real offhand remark during the, the race relations segment that we're, we're all essentially bigoted. That seemed to me like a good follow-up there, and, and I just really didn't see any follow-up from him when it came to her. No, he missed opportunities to, to go after her on stuff, and he did take opportunities to go after Trump and fact-check Trump during the show. And at one point in time, she did say, Lester, look, we've been here before. Can we can we move on? And she kind of cut herself off in the middle of that. Yeah, uh, it's it's sad when we look at moderators and say he, he wasn't the, the worst it could have been. We just we don't expect a whole lot anymore. Uh, from the people who moderate these things, we just have a scale of bad. Was it was it okay bad? Was it normal bad? Was it really bad bad? And and, and to the end, that he didn't press her hard enough. Is that sexist? Yeah, and, and is it is it almost a reverse sexism? Whereas he was afraid to press her hard enough because he was afraid she wouldn't be able to handle it slash keep up. I mean, that's, yeah. you know, that, to me, that's kind of, uh, will that be picked up on in advance? Or is the mainstream media and, and, and most liberal media outlets who would write about that, are they so far in the tank for her that they're just going to give that a, a wave of the hand? Uh, I, I think that they will conveniently not notice it or, or think about it that way. Uh, that's kind of having, having the argument uh, both ways, really, uh, at the end of the day. Look, at, at the end of the day, I think he was the American public arguing against big government, and she was big government making the claim for big government continuing. How did each one do kind of personally in your mind? I thought that, that Trump handled himself well enough. This is somebody who is is not a professional speaker. He, he speaks very – he tries to be – uh, charismatic about it. He can get emotional. Uh, he can get carried away. He's given to hyperbole. I thought he reigned most of that in. He didn't attack her personally at any point. He attacked her record repeatedly. And as for Hillary, I, you could see right out of the gate, she was trying very hard to come off as likable. She smiled whenever she thought the camera was on her. She had that sort of uh, 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 parade queen smile on her face whenever she wasn't talking. She was very conscious not to let her voice get carried away and get shrill. I thought she really made an, an extra conscious effort to come off just as likable. This this was the best Hillary we've seen. Mm -hmm. She was on her game. She was professional. She was she was a polished politician uh, last night. And, and under normal circumstances, I could see where you would say that hits A's on all points, but that's that's not the metric that the American public, especially the American voting public, is looking for. They're looking for something other than a politician who 
look, politicians have let us down for years now, and that's not what we want. Yeah, I thought that Trump then uh, doubled down on that sentiment at the end of it. And if there's, if it's true that the takeaway from the debate happens in the last 90 seconds, uh, Trump hammering home that point that why should we give her another chance? She's been part of the government that has gotten us to this point throughout her career, I thought was a great note for him to end on. And, and Hillary trying to say, look, I'm the one who's been training to be president that may have worked in a previous time, but I just don't know if that's the uh, the mood that the American public is in right now, as you brought up. Anything else hit you before we let you uh, get back to your uh, most recent project? <laughs> uh, well, my reindeer games uh, await, but I will be back uh, tomorrow. No, I took a, a lot of notes. I would just remind everybody, every time you thought Donald Trump did something bad in, in previous debates that, that was going to end him, his numbers only went up. And if you keep that in mind, uh, don't be surprised if he only continues to rise from here. It'll be interesting to see that. We've got less than two weeks till the next one uh, coming up a week from Sunday. That's going to be at WashU in St. Louis. Quaid taking time out from his reindeer urine recycling facility uh, to join us this morning on the morning meeting. He'll be back in full force coming up tomorrow. Thanks for taking the time, bud. We'll see you tomorrow. Sure thing. All right, we'll continue the morning meeting. We'll be joined by the Illinois watchdog, Ben Yount, coming up next on the morning meeting. Where we go, others will follow. That's who we are. Even if it's not the best idea. The morning meeting on Talk Radio 930 WTAD. This is Dennis Miller, and you're listening to the morning meeting. Here on Talk Radio 930 WTAD. Yeah, yeah, I noticed that too. Ben Yount, Illinois Watchdog, going to join us just in a moment here. He had to he had to reload his cereal bowl before the segment. It happens. The guy, the guy enjoys his uh, breakfast cereal each morning. The words that were created during the debate last night, <laughs> I heard it too. Bigly, big Donald Trump saying bigly. I was waiting for a follow-up, but he just let it stand on his own. Is it actually an official word in the English language? Not so sure. Were we all able to grok what he meant? Yeah, I think we were uh, most likely able to do that. And then his weird comment about 400-pound bedridden hackers. I didn't know exactly where that was coming from, but uh, he's always interesting uh, to watch during uh, d- during debates, and we'll get two more chances to do uh, just that as we move toward the uh, second Tuesday in November. It's time to be joined now by the man who has just reloaded his uh, cereal bowl to do this segment, Ben Yount, Illinois watchdog. Uh, ben, the Green Party's Jill Stein got a little free pub last night outside the presidential debate when she took some photos with police officers there and then was escorted from the debate grounds because she was not invited to officially join the debate. When's the last time you had to be escorted away from anywhere? Oh, God. I've been asked to leave. Uh, I, I don't... It's, it's been a while since I've actually been escorted out, but again, again, and this is the important thing to remember, never convicted. Yeah, those are the key words in, in our justice system. Uh, you can be charged as much as you want. As long as you're not convicted, then uh, you're, you're just the, the Teflon Don of Illinois. <laughs> 
out Illinois Watchdog with us this morning on the morning meeting. Let's jump into some uh, Illinois issues. I thought this was interesting, but tell me whether or not it's going to have any sort of ripple effect or or resonating presence. Uh, a little bit more than a quarter million dollar donation to uh, Illinois Comptroller Leslie Munger's campaign has lifted the caps on political contributions and now it sets the stage for more big money to come into the race for uh, for uh, Comptroller. This is not one of those top-of-the-ticket sexy offices that we see. Uh, it's often decided by those who will either vote a straight ticket or are going to follow up because of another vote is the fact that more money is going to be allowed, not guaranteed, but allowed into this of any of any consequence in your mind. Yeah, these caps were always going to be broken. Uh, as long as Bruce Rauner is is playing in Illinois politics, the caps are going to be broken. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but this is this is sort of a, a bipartisan equal opportunity slugfest. Don't don't anyone out there feel bad for the Democrats? That machine has more money than God, and they usually spend it just in gubernatorial races. So yes, it, it is. Noteworthy, not extraordinary that these caps were going to be broken, but you hit it on the head. I mean, this is the comptroller's race. This is, this is the, the person who pays the bills. They have become a, a much more public figure, but this office doesn't really have any real power. This is what happens when Mike Madigan and Bruce Rauner have decided to go to war. Every office, every state house position, every job, becomes important. It becomes this proxy war. So, yeah, we are going to hear a lot more about Illinois' comptroller, but we're not going to hear anything new. We, we are going to hear Bruce Rauner versus Mike Madigan, only the names will be Leslie Munger and Susanna Mendoza. Uh, you know, th- th- this all, Judy Bartopinka passed away, so mm-hmm. now this race is here in November, and I think the Republicans are trying to fight that Democratic wave. But I... I still wonder how many people who are going to go out and vote for Hillary are going to vote down ballot. I, I have I have worries, concerns, questions about the people who are going to go out and vote for Donald Trump, whether they will vote down ballot as well. I mean, this is, again, governor, sexy, sheriff, local, comptroller, eh. Even in a state where whether or not a bill gets paid, that seems to be more power than that office would usually have. We're picking and choosing what bills get paid in Illinois because we're doing sort of the, the, the broke man shuffle. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, again, you know, when, when Dan Hines was comptroller, when Lolita Diedrichson was comptroller in 1998, nobody cared. The comptroller's position was like Lieutenant Governor Light. You parked a hack there who maybe was going to run for county commissioner in DuPage County in five years. It, it really was a sort of, you've been a good party soldier, here's a statewide office, collect your pension, thanks so much, here's the bump on your Wikipedia page. Uh, since Judy Bartopinka made it into an advocacy office, it has become more important. But, but even then, while they can choose to a certain degree, they have a certain amount of power as to which bill gets paid, they don't have the authority to pay the money. That's the legislature. And they, they don't have the money, they don't have the power to set the agenda. That's the governor. And this is, this is sort of, you know, one of these, this is how bad Illinois has become. This is what the, the fight has become because they have, they have made the comptroller 
the race to watch in the state because again this is this is the proxy battle this is the fight in in Afghanistan or Nicaragua this is you know we have to stop communism wherever and whenever it is Bruce Rauner has decided that he is going to stop the democratic machine whenever wherever and now the comptroller's race is going to be the big statewide race ne- never mind the senate race in Illinois mm. the, the comptroller's race Our guest this morning on the morning meeting, Ben Yount, Illinois Watchdog. Ben, the third largest school district in the nation took a vote yesterday, and uh, teachers in Chicago, in the uh, CTU, uh, voted overwhelmingly 88% that they would get behind a strike. But uh, a couple things have to happen before that's possible next month. You've already said on this show a couple of times, there are things that make government too real for people. Keeping your kids at home when they should be in school is one of those and maybe at the top of the list for many. But the Chicago Teachers Union favored strike authorization uh, yesterday afternoon. They are trying to still get a new uh, agreement in place, a new contract in place. They've been asking for the sky while delivering dirt for the most part. Uh, this is going to get contentious, and if it ends up with kids at home or kids on the street, and we've talked about the crime rate in Chicago, this just looks bad all the way around. This is not good. And this is going to play differently in the city than it's going to play statewide. Yeah, And, and this is one of these sort of uh, actions have consequences, and the Chicago teachers are looking two feet in front of them. They, they want this next contract to be good. They want this next contract to to, to be another winner for them. And they, I don't think, are looking at the reality two years, three years, four years down the road that there's no stomach for this. Mayor Rahm Emanuel is probably going to cave and he is going to do whatever he can to make sure that there is labor peace in his city. But lawmakers downstate, Governor Rahner, they're not going to forget this. And, And you hit it on the head. No one can stand up and say, oh, my God, these Chicago teachers, they are, they are, they are they're so taken advantage of. They're making the average salary is like $108,000, $110,000. And they are dragging the bottom of the barrel when it comes to results. And one of these days, somebody is going to finally stand up and, and hold them accountable. I think that, that Chicago teachers are, are playing a dangerous game. And I really think that it's going to come back to bite him in the butt because this is going to force a tax increase one way or the other. And, and we're getting to the point now where people are starting to realize, I mean, for God's sakes, 90% of the support for Donald Trump is this frustration of, oh, my God, we've got to change. These people have been screwing us for years. And, and when Chicago teachers force another tax increase or tax increases, it is going to piss people off to the point where they're, they're going to snap back. And, and I think that these teachers run a real risk, real risk of, of overplaying their hand and being left out in the cold, if not on the next contract, then maybe, maybe with some new state laws. I was a little bit surprised that the history teachers in the room didn't raise their hand and say, you know, when the uh, when the auto industry was in big trouble, workers in Michigan uh, kind of took that into account and worked with the manufacturer in order to set up an environment in which they could attempt to rebound and thrive again. You would think that at least the history teachers would have raised their hand and said, you know, there's some precedent for trying to work together to overcome this, but 
Nobody raised their hand, and it's it's to me it's a damn the torpedoes approach to this that they're just there to get theirs, and it makes all those years of saying it's about the children, you know, just ring so hollow. <laughs> it's it's never been about the children. It's always been about the pay raise, about the pensions, about the health care. Listen, Chicago schools have lost the equivalent of St. Charles schools in students. Thousands and thousands of kids. You, you could take the, the district in St. Charles, however many tens of thousands of kids that, 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 that is. That's how many kids Chicago schools have lost. Lawmakers in Springfield right now are trying to figure out how to change how we pay for schools in the state. And one of the arguments that is, that is ringing throughout the state is, listen, if Chicago continues to lose students, why should they continue to get more money? That, that if we're paying where the students go, why do we continue to pay more and more and more to Chicago when they lose more and more students? This kind of a contract that, that defers pension costs, health care costs, that gives them three raises, this is not going to build any goodwill. And eventually what's going to happen is somebody's going to make, sure, make, make Chicago schools actually become accountable for what they're not doing, the kids they're not graduating, the kids that they are not educating. And, and when that happens, when, when, when the, the bottom falls through, you're exactly right. This is, this is Detroit in the 70s, and people are buying Toyota, you know, Toyota Celicas, and, and they're still pushing out Cadillacs. They get five miles to the gallon. The, the bottom is going to fall out of this, and God forbid, I mean, I, I can't wait for the day we get school choice in this state or a voucher program. You get that in Chicago, and all, this entire union infrastructure will collapse under its own weight. Again, it's not a school system. Most of the kids in Chicago, 60% of the kids statewide aren't, doing, aren't reading or, or doing math at grade level. The numbers are worse in Chicago. Chicago's schools have become a health care provider and a retirement system for teachers. And, and that's not what we signed up for in this strike. This strike is only going to highlight the differences between the haves and the have-nots. Anyone who can leave Chicago will, and the rest of the folks who are there are going to be stuck paying for an ever-worsening school system. Correct me if I'm wrong on this, Ben Yount with me this morning on the morning meeting. The school funding formula that's put in place in the state of Illinois, it actually has a different funding formula per student in Chicago than it does in the rest of the state, correct? There's, there, there's a different accountability and, and, and payment rate by the state in that district as opposed to the rest of the state? The, 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 the formula is supposed to guarantee at least $6,119 per kid. That doesn't happen. It's supposed to then balance out the need, particularly in the city of Chicago, with low-income federal money, Title I money, if anybody's ever really following it. But the problem is every student in the city of Chicago, from Walter Payton Prep, where Governor Rauner's kids went, to the poorest of poor schools on the west side, they are all classified as low-income mm-hmm. needy children, when in all reality they aren't. So the, the, the problem has always been you've got schools in the suburbs that aren't getting their state help, while you get the city of Chicago getting a disproportionate amount of state help, mostly in, in the tune of these federal grants, and you have downstate schools sitting around saying, well, well, well what about us? You're, you're right. Chicago schools get far more money than any of the rest of the schools in the state of Illinois. And, and they used to be able to say, Chicago schools used to be able to say, hey, listen, we're the state's largest school district. We're the third largest 
in the country, but they've been bleeding students. And while they still are the largest, they are no longer nearly as large as they used to be. And the state is looking at giving them a haircut, saying, okay, you don't have the students you had 10 years ago. You don't need to get the money you were getting 10 years ago. And this strike, this, this ski-mask and pistol attempt from the CTU is not going to endear any lawmaker, Republican, Democrat, anyone outside the city of Chicago, is going to be bothered by this tactic from CTU, which is purely political, purely designed to put the pressure on Rahm Emanuel going into a November election when Democrats in the city turn out to vote for Hillary Clinton. It, it, is, it has nothing to do with education or kids or what the district can afford. This is pure union thuggery. And it will, it will come back to bite them. Ben Yount, Illinois Watchdog, my guest this morning here on the morning meeting. Ben, I know you got a full day ahead of you. Thanks so much for the time. Appreciate it, man. You can get back to that uh, bowl of cereal you were pouring when we started the segment. It, cre- cream of wheat. Cream of wheat. Ma- maple, brown sugar, <laughs> cream of wheat. I suggest it to anybody. Ben's 96 years old all of a sudden with his cream of wheat this morning on the morning meeting. Thank you, bud. We'll talk again soon. See you. The morning meeting. We'll wrap it up next on WTAD. Giving conservatives a voice in the tri-states. I mean, this stuff moves people. It's the morning meeting on Talk Radio 930 WTAD. WTAD. It's the morning meeting on Talk Radio 930 WTAD. Sean hanging out with you the remainder of this well, solo show today. I don't feel like I was here alone, though. We quit Quade calling in to be part of the show. He'll be back in full force coming up tomorrow. One big thing happened yesterday that I had to move to the final segment in good conscience based on the fact that we had the debate to talk about and then Ben Yount scheduled to join us, and that was the NASA announcement yesterday about Europa. They came out with the news that uh, is very interesting that uh, there is actually liquid water on uh, Jupiter's moon, Europa. And this basically redefines where we think we could look for other life. Now that we know that liquid water can exist in sort of different parameters than we had originally thought. They had always used a sort of a scientific model that you needed to be in the Goldilocks zone around a star that would support liquid water. Well, there are now, we have proof other ways of supporting that. And the reason liquid water is so important is because water is so essential to life as we understand it. So it was very interesting yesterday with that announcement uh, from NASA. And speaking of space news, and no, no aliens on Europa. Don't, you don't have to worry about that just yet. Speaking of space news, the last day of this month, coming up on Friday, will actually give us a rare lunar event that we haven't seen since March of uh, 2014, what, uh, what is referred to as a black moon. Yeah. Black moon, uh, the, the most common definition of it, is the second new moon in a calendar month, similar to the blue moon, which is the uh, second full moon uh, in a calendar month. So uh, this is this is going to be uh, this is going to be something unusual, new moon as opposed to full moon. So there you go. It won't be visible uh, as the side of the moon that is illuminated will be facing away from the Earth when it happens. Uh, but we know enough to know this is going on. So this is could be very cool. All right. See, it's the old Chinese curse. 
But you live in interesting times, living in interesting lunar times. Uh, now here in uh, 2016, that and uh, interesting political times as well after the debate last night. That's going to do it for us this morning. If you missed any of it, grab the podcast. It'll be up at WTAD.com in mere moments. Coming up tomorrow, Dwayne Lester. I've been saving a story for Dwayne since Thursday that has to do with property rights, government trying to exercise eminent domain in reverse. I know, it's going to be interesting to sort of unwind it all. Quaid's return. Dwayne joins us all tomorrow here on The Morning Meeting. Morning Meeting adjourned. Join us again tomorrow for the best talk in the tri-states. The Morning Meeting on Talk Radio 930 WTAD.